back in the day when I was a brand new youth intern. Translation, youth pastor who screws up. I was a youth intern. I just, my, one of my first er, times of real responsibility in ministry. My youth leader commissioned me to lead our youth canoe trip. <laughs> Which I was good at. I enjoyed canoeing. In fact, there was a season where I considered myself a complete expert at canoeing. Still think I have some talent, but this story will reveal how I was not an expert. So we're taking my youth group, 30 or 40 kids, down the Okatoma River south near Hattiesburg. And I'm laying all the details out. And when it comes to like actually controlling a canoe, I am pretty good, okay? In fact, at that point, I was very proud of the fact that I had never accidentally tumped over. Now, you notice I have to qualify that with accidentally. Because when it's 98 degrees in August in Mississippi and you're in a river, you'll tump over on purpose. So I had gone through, I, through uh, middle school and high school and into college working at a camp where I was helped teach canoeing and went on multiple, multiple canoe trips. And been down the Okotoma a bunch of times and had been down the Strong River a bunch of times. I'd even been down the Spring River in Arkansas, which is a class three. And all you need to know is four is whitewater rafting. So it's pretty serious river. So I considered myself awesome at canoeing because I had never tumped accidentally. And I went on the record for that and told my youth group, hey, I have never tumped over accidentally. I'm in charge. This is going to be awesome. We're going to have a blast. And I'm cruising and I didn't tump over at all. We were doing fantastic. There's only one small problem. As familiar as I was with the Okotoma, apparently, since I really had never guided a trip before, we were slightly ahead of schedule. We're told it's this many hours to do the float. And so I'm not even looking for the exit ramp until, there's a three hour float, I think. I'm, looking, I'm not even looking for the exit until two and a half. The only problem with that theory is we were moving a little faster than that. Maybe we didn't swim long enough. Maybe they built in time for you to like hang out at the rapids and we didn't hang out that long. And we were a good hour below the exit point before I realized it. We did the entire three hour float in about two hours. And so at hour three, we are an hour down the Okotoma past where they come to pick you up. The only problem with that is that's not even the Okotoma River anymore, I found out. So we're going along, and, we're and the river's getting a little slower and less familiar, and I'm constantly looking for the sign that says exit here. Under Every time we go under a bridge, because the exit's on a bridge, no, that's not the right bridge. I'm looking, and I'm wondering... I'm watching the clock going, it's three and a half hours. I hadn't seen the sign. I'm nervous. I'm getting there. You know, it's like we're supposed to be back in Jackson at six. It's like five. We're still on the river. You know, I'm getting nervous, getting anxious, whatever. And we're at this really slow part of the river. And I still don't know how this worked or how this happened. We jumped over. My canoe jumped over on accident. Now, that would be okay if it was some challenging class three rapid and I just missed, the, missed the, the V and all that. No, it was a stick in the water. My boat went up on it, turned, and tumped. I'd never tumped in class three waterfalls. A stick flipped me over. <laughs> I was so disheartened. Of course, everybody who had heard me make these proclamations about how good I am at canoeing were quick to go, mm, how'd that work out for you? You ever heard the phrase, pride before the fall? This is a real life example of that. And when you realize, so after, after I'm tumped, everything's wet, I'm, my pride's broken to, some, to a good degree already. 
we start looking for a way out of the river because something's wrong. And we see a building. So we pull over, and it's up a sheer cliff out of the river, like trees. and like, It's not like a, hey, walk your canoes out. It's like a this cliff. So we climb up. It's a restaurant. It's a catfish place near Hattiesburg. We were not on the Okatoma anymore. We were on the Blue River, wherever that is. And it's just, they have this all-you-can-eat buffet, seafood place, that before you get to Hattiesburg. If you've ever driven down there, you know where I'm talking about. You see the signs for it on 49. That's how far we're out of the rain we canoed. Now, they got to come down there to get us, and these canoes have to go up the side of the ridge. I mean, this was, hey, youth intern, you were in charge of this trip, right? Mm-hmm. I missed the exit sign. I missed the sign. And by the way, when I tumped over and broke my record of pure not, I wasn't even on the river I was supposed to be on. We are supposed to be out of the river. My record should have been intact. I have no more pride when it comes to canoeing or leading expeditions. I'm hoping they give me a GPS next time and tell me this is where the bridge is so I will know. Because you know, this is all pre-internet, pre-cell phone, all that. The way we were able to call the Okotoma outpost and tell them where we were was the payphone at the restaurant. Because that's how long ago this was. But it was an absolute disaster from a leadership standpoint. Of course, we, get, we got all the kids the buffet at the restaurant because it was like supper time. We hadn't headed back to Jackson yet. So they all got like catfish because of my screw-up, you know? Nobody, I'm telling you that whole story to tell you, nobody is perfect. And even when you think you are, you're not. Even when you got a track record of being pretty good, you're not. And if the Lenten season tells us anything, it is that, that nobody is perfect. All kinds of chaos ensued when I missed the sign that says, Okotoma Outpost, exit here. Two more hours of canoeing, I tumped over, we had, to, we had to hoist canoes out of a ravine. Disaster, complete chaos, because I didn't see the standard, I didn't see the sign, I didn't see the exit, and I thought I had it all figured out and thought I was perfect. By the way, when you're a pastor, you're supposed to tell all these spiritual hero stories. This is the hero, this is a spiritual disaster story. But our lives are no different, right? We, just when we think we have our spiritual life figured out, just when we think we're pretty good, just when we think our church attendance meets God's standard, that's when we spiritually tump over. Nobody is perfect. Paul wanted us to understand this too. So turn with me to Romans chapter 3. And we're going to start today in verse 9. And go from there. Paul's going to back up what I just said, which is actually I'm going to back up what Paul said. <laughs> Let's put it that way. What then? Are we, in, are we any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, all, both Jew and Greek, are under the power of sin, as it is written. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together, they have all become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Thanks, Paul. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their path. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's some heavy-duty Paul right there, right? He's quoting Psalm 14, among others, by the way. If you're you're reading your Bible, it has the little, like, indented passage. It's because he's quoting Psalm 14. So he's quoting Old Testament when he says, There is no one who has met God's standard. No one seeks after God. No one is righteous. No one can get there on their own power. Nobody has a perfect canoeing record. Ever. (laughs) Somebody has tumped over when they didn't mean to at some point in their life. The law was never a standard we were going to be able to keep. God gave Moses ten commandments. The Hebrew leaders wrote another 630 on top of that. I can't keep the ten, let alone the 630. But they, kept, they wrote the 630 to protect, us from, protect the good, God's people from the ten. If this is a sin, let's put the marker way over here so you won't ever get close to the sin itself. You'll just break this law. I mean, they... You know, it's like, here's the boundary, but we're going to put a boundary out here so you can't possibly cross the boundary. They did the best they could. And did the people of God in the Old Testament keep God's law? Have you read the Old Testament? No. David couldn't keep God's law. A man who the Scriptures call God, a man after God's own heart. He did a lot of good things. He did things God had called him to do. He wrote the, a lot of the Psalms for us. Good spiritual guy. Murder, conspiracy, and adultery on his list. Nobody keeps the law. It was never a standard we were going to keep. Paul says in verse 11 and 12 that everyone turns away. Everyone. No one seeks after God. That's a, man, that's a negative view. But left to our own devices, it's absolutely true. Anybody got toddlers? Right? They're, <laughs> they're unfiltered. They want what they want and they want it now. They're pure, unadulterated human. They got no conscience yet. They got, I want my hot dog and I want it now. You know, whatever it is. And they're going to throw a tantrum in the middle of the Walmart just to prove a point. They're completely controlled by their desire. No, if left to our own devices, we would all be spiritual toddlers. I want what I want and I want it now. I'm going to write my own law. I'm going to keep my own rules. I'm going to set my own guidance. This is what I want to do. Notice all the eyes in that statement. So Paul's saying, nobody seeks after God. We all want what we want. But we're more than just... We're, it's, everyone turns away, which implies that we're looking for something. You see, as soon as we go, okay, God's law? Nah. I'm going to write Charlie's law. Or I'm going to seek hope or comfort from this instead of God. Or I'm going to chase this. We're spiritually distracted in that sense. We're spiritually on a path to go, Jesus, God, Bible, church, that's good, but I want a million dollars. You know, whatever, whatever the goal is that we love more than God, we've turned away from God and we're seeking comfort in or we're seeking meaning in or we're seeking hope in something else. And that's what God calls idolatry. We're worshiping those things we pursue instead of God. Does that mean you can't have a million bucks? No, that's not what I'm saying. But when the pursuit of a million, if you have a million bucks, let me know. When the pursuit of a million bucks is more important to you than God, it's an idol. When the pursuit of career, when the pursuit of significant other, when the pursuit of anything is more important 
than God, then you've turned toward idol. You're worshiping something else when you love it more than God. It's one of the reasons we practice things at Lent, right? The things that we, like, it's hard to give up are the things we give up. It's a pretty good bet if it's really hard to give up, it's pushing into that idol territory. That's why it's hard to give up. We get comfort from it. We get emotional peace from it. We get meaning from it. I mean, who doesn't get meaning from good old double bacon cheeseburger? You know what I mean? If that's what you're, if that's what you're giving up, like fast food for Lent, everybody, anybody ever, you know? If you get, not me, I'm just using that as an example. If you ever give up fast food for Lent, you're like, oh man, there's a Wendy's, there's a Burger King, there's a Jack's. Like you drive down the road, it's Lent season, you know? It's like, oh. Because <laughs> you love it. Whatever it is you're giving up, or it wouldn't be a sacrifice. If it was easy to give it up, it's not a sacrifice. Yeah, I'm giving up watching LSU play sports. I don't care. That's not a sacrifice. Right? But when it's near and dear to our heart, it becomes something we worship. Look at verse 13 and 14. Paul's laying out in these verses some ways that we fall short of God's law. In 11 and 12, he talks about us turning away and seeking after other things. Eleven and twelve. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. We can sin with our words. We can sin, we can disobey God's standard with what we talk about, the way we talk to others, the way we... A throat is an open grave. That either says something about what's coming out of you, like what's going on inside of you that's coming out of you, or you're being hurtful with the way you talk or, or speak to somebody else. He talks about deceit. He talks about venom. He talks about, in other words, our voices, our words being hateful, weaponized things. Open graves. Yikes. Because just in case you think, oh, I'm not that bad, keep reading this passage. Because sometimes, honestly, just between you and me, we don't even know when our words hurt. You ever been there? It's not like you meant to hurt the person, but you said something that hurt them. You can sin accidentally. <laughs> That's not fair. So just in case you're thinking, oh, I, was, I was perfect last week, ask everybody you talk to and let's find out. Right? A coworker that you were curt with or short with. A spouse, you said something you shouldn't have said. We'll just start there. Hey, if you thought you were perfect last week, bring your spouse up here. We'll find out. You didn't make it to church this morning, okay? Let alone last week. It's tough. It's a standard we're not meant to keep. Paul says you can sin with your words. They reveal inner corruption. Our words are hurtful and destructive. In fact, the structure in this is verse 13 and 14 that I read. It sounds like he's saying the same thing over and over again. We've been talking about this in our Psalms class, on Wednesday, our Bible study on Wednesday night. That's a, he's quoting Psalms, right? So that's a seconding sentence. Paul's going, our words are hurtful. They are venom. They are, he's like reinforcing how strong an idea this is. It's a Hebrew language structure. He's saying the same thing to make a point, to provide emphasis on it. This is a big deal. Verse 15 to 17. As soon as I find it. Here we go. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their path. 
16 and 17. And the way of peace they have not known. Then he goes on to say, nobody fears God. Now, this is a general mode of operation. Nobody's going out like making people bleed. Right? Just checking. I hope not. But it's like the word thing. The way we treat others, the way we interact with others, the way we're unkind to others, the way we're not loving toward others causes emotional pain. There's consequence. There's anguish. There's destruction in some cases. You see, sin is theological in nature. When I say sin, it's a church word that means disobeying God, right? It's a theological truth. That's sin. That's sin. It's a theological statement. But it has, sin has real-world social consequence. Either by what we don't do or by what we do, destruction lays in our wake. Pain and suffering lays in our wake. Hurt is in our wake by what we do or by what we don't do. It has real, temporal, meaningful consequences. Yes, we're called to forgive somebody when they wrong us. That doesn't mean there won't be a consequence for the wrong in the real world sense. Yeah, I don't hold it against them. That doesn't mean there's not some fallout from the sin itself. Paul says we're open graves and we're destructive with the way we live. No one follows God. And he didn't go, hey, except unless you're this good or this person, nobody. You see, we're either, we're either blind to our sin or we medicate it. We're either oblivious that we're, that we're not perfect, <laughs> like Mr. Canoeing Instructor, you know. We're just oblivious to it. Or we do something to medicate and hide the fact that we're not. We either, we either rebel against God's law, like I know that's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to rebel against it. I know God says that's wrong. I don't care. This is the way I want to live. Or rebel, or this is, I actually got this from Sharon Hope Miller, if you've ever read her or seen her or heard her speak. We either rebel against grace, against the law, and flaunt it and go, it's not going to follow it. Or we rebel against grace by abusing it. I'm going to live the way I want and just get forgiveness. I'll just keep sinning so that grace may abound, to quote Paul in another place. Why don't I just keep on sinning even more and more so God can give me more and more grace? That's rebelling against grace because that's abusing grace. That's saying, hey, God will forgive me, so I'm just going to live how I want tomorrow. Paul has very specific words about that. <laughs> I think I've shared this before. He uses, a, he uses a Greek phrase there, meganoito. The literal Greek is, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> that's not how this works. He says, should I, if God gives grace over sin when we, when we confess for forgiveness, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Are you kidding me? That is not how any of this works. <laughs> the commercial. That's not how this works, right? That's not how this works. If God's forgiven me, and I've been transformed, and I've been healed, spiritually speaking, that ought to produce a different response. Not a repeat or a deeper dive into if God displays grace in my life, the response shouldn't be, sweet, I'm going to do it again. The response should be, now keep me from ever going there again. It's Jesus' words to the woman at the well. She gets caught, not the well, she gets caught in adultery and gets brought before Jesus. And he says, anybody who has a problem with her, throw a stone. 
Y'all know this story? And the leaders walk away. They're not going to stone her to death for adultery. And she, he goes, anybody? And she goes, nope, nobody's here. And he goes, then I don't condemn you either. But then the next phrase is as important or more important. Go and sin no more. He doesn't say, oh, they didn't convict you of adultery, then neither do I have a good life. Go back to your life. He says, go and don't do it anymore. They don't condemn you. I don't either. You're forgiven. Now live apart from that. Respond to the grace displayed in your life by living differently, not abusing it or rebelling against it. So, now that you feel all nice and convicted, right? Because none of us are perfect. All of us are the canoeing instructor that thinks they know what they're doing. That's another way of Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and, short of, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of glory of God. Everyone turns away to their own thing that they love more. Nobody is perfect. We get it. So what? Right? What do we do? Because I could leave you there until Easter. That would be terrible. Right? So what do we do? So what? We're to empty ourselves of our excuses. You ever sit in class and you blow it, but you have an excuse for why you didn't turn in whatever it was, or you got at work, you didn't meet a deadline, you had 20 excuses why you didn't meet it? Anybody been there? Nobody, just me? Okay. We are to empty ourselves of excuses. Look at 19 and 20 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. The whole world may be held accountable to God. Actually, I'll just read 19 for now. What does he mean by everybody being silenced? He means you can't go, but God, I just really like that. Silence means we have no rebuttal. We have no excuse before God. Everyone is held accountable. We are without excuse. The Guinness Book of World Records for a man who can, furthest a person can swim is 155 miles. Anybody for this week? The World Guinness Book of World Records is 155 miles. That is a long swim, people. <sighs> that's like, that's past Tuscaloosa in the water. You know what I mean? That's like swimming to Birmingham from here in the water. Anybody? What if we said, okay, everybody's swimming 300 miles. Anybody meeting that standard? What's your excuse? Well, I made it 80 miles. Anybody here could do that? <laughs> Right? What, is our, what would our tendency be? Let's say we all did this. We're all trying to swim 300 miles. All right. At mile two, I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> tap. Somebody gets to mile 12. At least I'm better than Charlie. He got to mile two. At least I'm better than so-and-so. He got to mile 20, but I got to mile 50. Awesome. Everybody dead? Everybody drowned? Anybody hit 300? No. It doesn't matter how good a swimmer you are, you're not going to meet the standard. You have no excuse. You're going to, if you're the world record setter, you're going to get to 155, and then you're going to tap out. Nobody's getting the 300 in God's eyes. We can't get there. We have no excuse. Well, I got a cramp at 125. It doesn't work. We're not going to get there. And so it doesn't matter if you swim 75 or 60. By the way, I'd be impressed. You know? None of us have met that standard. We have no excuse. Pretty good is not good enough is the point. Not only is nobody perfect, even, as good, even if you get to 100 mile 155, 
you're still not there. And you're a good swimmer. We are without excuse. The law shows us that. See, there's really two purposes to the law. I think I've got this right. There are two purposes to the law. To show us that we can't meet the standard. Actually, that's the main purpose. That's what he says in verse 20, right? It's to take away our excuses. That's the first thing. Everyone is without excuse. He says it bluntly in Romans 1. He says, God has made His, his divine quality revealed in creation and through, uh, in some way so that we are without excuse. Verse 19 and 20. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law. So that every mouth may be silenced without excuse and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. So it takes away our excuses and holds us accountable. For no human being will be justified in its sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If I'd have seen the exit sign, I wouldn't have tumped over. If I'd have seen the exit port, we wouldn't have been miserable trying to get out of that river. If I'd have seen the exit port, we'd have been home on time to all the parents waiting on their kids to be back. All kinds of chaos would have been prevented if I had just acknowledged what the rule for leaving the river was. But I thought I knew the river like the back of my hand and where the stopping point was and how long it takes and when to get out. I thought I had it all figured out. But there was a big sign that says, Okotoma Outpost, so that I was without excuse. <laughs> what the law does is it shows us where we're off. It shows us where we are so we can empty ourselves of excuses. But the second thing we need to do is we need to empty ourselves of comfort and it, that we find in false hope. In those idols that I mentioned, not only without excuse, we know we're going to fail. There is only one solution to all this failure. And it's not our pet idol. It's not our thing we love more. It's not career. It's not relationship. It's not, it's not wealth. It's not anything that we pursue as valuable as they are and as kingdom-minded as those pursuits can be, you will not find hope there. They will fail you. And so we're without excuse. We need something. But we can't look to our own path for salvation. We have to empty ourselves of our comforts too. The law reveals our misplaced hope. The things we pursue to fill our lives that are other than God and His glory. By the way, this is the true intent of a Lenten fast. I don't know what you gave up for Lent, but Lent is not a church-wide health program. It's not a church-wide, okay, we're all going to lose 10 pounds and be healthier and more satisfied. That is not what Lent is. In fact, it gets co-opted that way sometimes. It's like, okay, well, I'm giving up fast food and chocolate so that I can lose 15 pounds or whatever. You know, I'm giving up weight for Lent. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, that's not, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that if... When you're sacrificing those things, it's enabling you to follow Jesus better. You see, the intent of a Lenten practice is to acknowledge these two things. That we're without excuse before God. And that the things we cling to the most can't help us. It's a sh the Lenten practices are meant to shift our focus from ourselves to our focus on God. If you're giving up eating out or fast food or whatever it is, what are you filling that time with? If you're giving up Facebook, what are you filling that time with? 
Okay, I'm not going to scroll with Facebook. I'm giving up Facebook for Lent, but Instagram has stories too. <laughs> That's not how it works. Like, what are we filling the time with? Are we sacrificing so we'll feel good about ourselves or so we'll be healthier? So we will get something out of it. Or are we sacrificing, are we practicing Lenten sacrifice to restore our focus and worship on God? So emptying ourselves of the things we love is meant to allow us to be filled with something that does have, give us hope, that does give us meaning, that puts the focus back where it belongs. It's supposed, giving up something at Lent is supposed to give you space to focus on God. If it doesn't do that, it's a good diet trick. <laughs> does that make sense? So we're supposed to empty ourselves of our excuses. We're not going to meet God's standard. And we're supposed to empty ourselves of the things we love instead of God so that God can fill us, so that we can be filled with Jesus, so that we can be made new. You, you've got to empty yourself of these things because the pursuit of them are what separates you from God. Making excuses means you think you're perfect. Pursuing something else means you worship something else. The Lenten season is meant to call us to empty ourselves of those things so we can be with Jesus. And that's hard for us to do. That's why the Lenten practice is hard. Because it's stuff that we love, maybe more than God. Certainly more than other priorities. Or we wouldn't have to fight to give it up. Do we love sin so much we can't release it to be with God? A sin, a particular sin, a thing that we or an idol that we were because having a career is not is not a sin. <laughs> In fact, I recommend it. Loving your career more than God is a sin. So sometimes we can love good things so much it becomes sin. What we have to do is create the space for God to work in our life. Paul says that the law was meant to reveal our sin. What he means is that when we read God's word, when we read the laws, is it shows us what we need to empty ourselves of. Arrogance. Mr. Canoeing Instructor. Right? By the way, I still struggle with that arrogance. I'm not, I know I'm not perfect. I got that part. But I still, there are areas in my life where I still go, yep, I'm the man. <laughs> Anybody? Right? We've got to empty, the, what the law does is show us there is a God and we're not it. So we can become more like him. So that he can fill us with his spirit. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask the band to come forward and provide us with some music. We're going to take a time of reflection to pray to prepare our hearts. We're having communion today. In fact, we're going to have communion every Sunday of Lent, with the exception of one. <laughs> but we're going to make communion part of our Lenten rhythm at Connection. Every Sunday, we're going to get into a practice of coming before the Father and emptying ourselves and preparing our hearts to eat at the table with Jesus. Because that is part of what the communion experience is about. It's about emptying yourself. It's about letting go of the things that stand between you and God and allowing His grace to be displayed in your life. 
So we're going to give them a few minutes to play quietly or whatever. And, you know, I know this is a contemporary church setting and all that good stuff, but we have good old traditional prayer rails up here. And so whether you want to confess something to Jesus and spend some time emptying yourself, these rails are open. Or whether you just want to come up here and pray, these rails are open. If you're introverted and that freaks you out, you can pray right where you are. <laughs> you have the option. That's the beauty of it. But we're going to spend a few minutes in prayer and then we're going to go to the Lord's table together. Let's be, let this be the first Sunday and the first moment of a practice of emptying ourselves before the Father.